Well, good morning. There's been a lot of new faces here this summer, and I praise God for that. So if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Jesse, and I am pastor of family discipleship and Christian education here at Woodridge. And um, it's a privilege to be a pastor here. It's also a privilege to come up here and preach the word this morning. Uh, this morning, we'll continue in the book of Mark. We'll be in Mark 12, 13 through 17. You can turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in front of you in the seat backs. We'd love for you to grab it. Open it up to Mark 12, 13 through 17. And it reads this. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The word of God. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning because of Jesus. Because Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh and became a man so he could live a perfect, sinless life and go to the cross on behalf of sinners like us. Lord, without you, there would be no hope. Without your mercy and your grace uh, on the cross, we would be without hope. So this is why we sing. This is why we gather. This is why we give our lives to you. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I praise you for your revealed word as well. And I pray this morning that you would give us hearts that are humble before you, that we would recognize that we are the creature, you are the creator, and that we would joyfully submit to your word for your glory, Lord. I pray we would delight in your word and obey it. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever wondered if you would have what it takes to die as a martyr for Christ? Do you think you would hold fast and profess Christ even uh, in torture and facing death? Or do you think you would crumble under pressure and renounce him? My daughter asked me similar questions after watching a documentary on Athanasius, who was a martyr in 320 AD, to which I answered, I pray that God would give me the strength to stay strong and to not dishonor Christ, even to the point of death. I want to ask you another question this morning. Do you think you have what it takes to obey the government for the name of Christ? Perhaps you've never been asked such a question. It seems kind of silly, especially being pinned against dying as a martyr for Christ. But I ask you again, do you have what it takes to obey the government for Christ, even if it means losing out on thousands of dollars a year in taxes? I believe that many Christians do not take seriously the scripture's instruction on how we're to relate to our government. 
So while this has been hard, it's been challenging for my own heart this week, preparing this, I think it is so good, and I'm excited to preach it. Now, I just want to warn you, after hearing feedback from last sermon, I feel like preaching the sermon is like holding a juicy steak before a dog, and yet they can't have it until they learn to sit and wait patiently, okay? And this sermon is much like that, in, the, in that we need to sit and learn these things that I'm going to start with that are important, right? If you just give your dog the steak, you're never going to have a peaceful meal in your life again, right? The dog's always going to come and beg. So we need to learn this fir- first part first before we can move on to some of these other things. And they're going to be on your mind the first two-thirds of the sermon, but I will get there. We'll get to the juicy steak, but we need to learn this other stuff first, okay? Now, uh, to the text. On the same day in which Jesus told the parable of the tenants, here again he finds himself surrounded by opponents who are seeking his demise. Now, this time it's the Pharisees and the Herodians who are teaming up against Jesus, even though they're enemies. They've done this before. Now, remember, the Herodians were staunch supporters of King Herod, who was a puppet king under Roman authority. Okay? They, they thought it was a great idea to join hands with Rome, to be in submission to them, and, 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 and move forward with them. They thought that was the best option. The Pharisees, on the other end, they didn't think it was a good idea. They despised the Roman government, and because of that, they despised Herod. That's why these two groups did not get along very well. And yet here they are, coming together again against Jesus. Now this time they begin their conversation with Jesus with flattery. They're basically saying, saying uh, Jesus, we know how godly you are, how you show no partiality, how you teach the way of God. Now, if you've ever worked with teenagers, you know to brace yourself if they ever walk up and start complimenting you on your hair or asking if they can wash the dishes. You know that, that something is up. If you're a good parent, the radar goes up and you're like, mm, what's going on here, right? Jesus does the same thing. He quickly identifies their hypocrisy and he says, why do you put me to the test? Right? Sometimes there's parents who probably feel like saying that too. But their plan is to trap Jesus with a question that cannot be answered, at least not without serious consequences. They thought they had the question that would bring Jesus down and kill his influence. In their minds, it was a heads I win, tails you lose type of question or a so when did you stop stealing from work type of question. So here's the question they ask in verse 14. They say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? It doesn't seem like that great of a question, really. But the question was designed so that if Jesus said no, the Herodians who love Herod and Rome would run right to them and say, Jesus is teaching people to defy Rome. We must punish him. And at the same time, if Jesus says yes, he's going to lose his popularity among the Jews and the Pharisees who don't like the Roman government. So it was a good question, but you can't stump the Son of God. He has all the right answers. He is the author of all truth, and he is the light that exposes all darkness and lies. So Jesus' answer in verse 17, what I want you to know about it this morning is it's, it's among the most commonly cited verses. You've probably heard this many a times. And not only that, but as Mark Dever states, he says, with this sentence begins the whole Western philosophy of politics. These words are foundational to Western political thought. So Jesus' answer to the question, is it lawful to pay taxes, is this. He says, render to Caesar 
the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, the first part is render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. In other words, Jesus is saying that all government authorities have a position in which there are certain things that are rightfully due to them. In other words, this is my first point. Christians are to render Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Christians are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, you don't have to be a Greek uh, scholar or a New Testament scholar to figure out that in Jesus' answer is implied this. Followers of Christ must pay their taxes. Okay? It doesn't matter if you're a Herodian, if you vote Republican, Democrat, or a Libertarian. If you are a Christian, you are responsible to pay your taxes honestly and accurately. Period. This passage is it's clear enough, but I want you to see that the idea of taxes is not foreign to Scripture. Okay? If we look at Israel under the Old Covenant, the people of Israel were required to give a tenth to the temple, which supported the priests who functioned as the main leaders, judges, and rulers of the nation. Again, this was a law, and it was required. They also paid festival taxes, welfare taxes. They were required not to plow their fields entirely. They had to leave the corners of their fields unplowed so that the, as a form of welfare so that the, the, uh, those without food had food. Now, I want you to understand in all these forms of taxes under the Old Covenant, they were not free will offerings where people just came and gave out of the joy of their heart. These were laws, okay? Under the Old Covenant, the nation of Israel paid between 23 and 25% of their earnings in taxes. They were built into the Old Covenant. And by the way, I just want you to think about this. We are the new covenant people of God, and there are not laws on how much we are to give to the church. Rather, we give willingly, we give generously, because Christ has given us new hearts. He has changed our hearts. He has compelled us to love him. And we no longer see money as just something to obtain things with, but we see it now as a currency to bring about the glory of God. We can now use money to bring glory to God by bringing the gospel and his teaching and preaching to the world. Praise God. And because we serve and we give out of hearts that are changed, we give even more so than, than what an Israelite would have given under the old covenant. We give more because we give joyfully for Christ. We also see taxes affirmed by John the Baptist. Um, in Luke 3, some tax... Now, if you remember John, he, he was baptizing a baptism of repentance. So people would come to them in repentance toward God and they would be baptized. So some tax collectors come to John to be baptized and they said to him, Teacher, what should we do? In other words, what do we need to do to repent? And he told them, collect no more than you are required to. So he tells them as tax collectors, he doesn't say, you can't collect taxes, you have no right. He says, don't collect more than you're supposed to. We're seeing Jesus' Jesus's position in Mark 12, but we also see it in Matthew 17, where he pays a temple tax. Now, if you think about it, this is interesting because he had already went in and cleansed the temple, and here he is paying a tax to it. And what's really interesting about this tax is Jesus pays this tax that goes into the temple treasury and would have been used to pay Judas the 30 pieces of silver to betray Christ. He paid a tax that would later be used to cause him to be crucified. So we don't have much of an excuse not to pay our taxes if Jesus did that. 
And Jesus isn't just our example, he is our forgiveness. So this morning, you hear a lot about what Scripture says and calls us to do, and it's good to remember that Christ is our forgiveness. He came and he shed his own blood so that he could stand in our place as a substitute before the very wrath of God, so that we could go free, so that we could be reconciled to God, and so we could also be empowered to give God glory even as we pay taxes. But Jesus' answer isn't limited to simply paying taxes. Now, the question was about paying taxes, and yet his answer is much more broad. The Pharisees would have hated this answer. By saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, he's not just saying yes to paying taxes to a pagan government, he's saying that Caesar has rights over us as a ruler. We are to give him his due. So we're not only to pay taxes to the government, we're to submit to the laws of the land and honor our leaders. Again, I'm saying, Christ is saying here, submit to the government authorities. Now, if you're like me, the knee-jerk reaction is, what? We don't always have to submit to the government. I'm guessing, I, I, I'm guessing it's the majority of you this morning, you have that kind of a reaction. And I think Jesus responded this way in Mark 12, and, and Paul did a similar teaching in Romans 13, because we so naturally err on the side of despising our government as if it's this institution that doesn't rightfully have anything coming to it, and it's just an annoyance. And yet we're called to obey our governing authorities. So we don't need to soak in and preach to ourselves civil disobedience, because if your heart's like mine, I'm ready to disobey. My sin nature is ready to disobey at any moment. What we need to soak in is thinking about obeying the laws of the land and honoring government officials. So maybe you're th- sitting here and you're thinking, yeah, but the government has no right. Who are they to think they can govern my life? Scripture has answers for that question. Okay? And if you haven't heard this, you might be surprised. But we're going to look at Romans 13, 1 through 6. It'll be on the screen. You can turn there if you want. This is Paul. He's, he's, he's writing to the Romans, and um, he's talking to them about how they are to respect the authorities. So let's, let's read it. Uh, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. So who gave government the right? 
This text clearly teaches that God has given the government the right. Verse 1 says that they were instituted by God. Verse 2 says that God appointed these authorities. Verse 4 says that they are God's servants. And verse 6 says they are ministers of God. And that's not to be confused as if they're some sort of nationalistic pastors, because they're not. It just means that they're serving God's bigger purposes for a nation. Now, I'm sure many of you, if it's, again, if it's your first time hearing this, you may just be blown away by these statements. And yet, you have in mind our government. And this government is one of the most easy to live under in the history of the world. But the governments that Christ had in mind, the governments that Paul had in mind, were horrible, horrible governments. The Caesar, at the time of Christ, when he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, uh, they taxed people extremely heavily. They sanctioned the torturing of people that were laid on their taxes. And if there was a community where enough people didn't pay their taxes, he would send soldiers in to destroy the whole entire village. Paul, who wrote Romans 13, he lived at a time when Nero was the Caesar of Rome. And it was far worse. He's known best for lighting the city of Rome on fire, killing thousands and then blaming it on Christians, and then making laws where Christians were actually pursued and persecuted and killed in ways that I do not want to mention here because they're absolutely disgusting. He ruthlessly killed Christians, and Paul himself was beheaded under Nero's persecution. And the only reason, that, that was a merciful killing, and the only reason why is because he was a Roman citizen. Now, if we look at these two rulers that, that that these leaders, Christ and Paul, are calling us to obey, the word of God is calling us to obey, neither of them are God's people. Neither of these Caesars were God's people. They lived in spiritual darkness following the, the, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, Satan. So they didn't honor God in their hearts, and they didn't often honor God in the way they ruled. And yet God has ordained flawed governments with sinful leaders to provide some sort of order to fallen nations. And until the day that Christ returns and his reign is fully realized, we will sit under imperfect governments. And yet they are carrying out God's sovereign purposes. And both Jesus and Paul, the word of God says we are to submit to them. So what does this look like here? Well, on a practical level, it means if you drive a car, you should follow the laws of the road. That means that uh, there are some little rectangular signs on the side of the road and they have numbers on them. Those are actually speed limits. That's what that number represents. I don't know if a lot of people know that, but, but really we should be obeying the speed limit. If you're a fisherman, you only get to keep the number of fish that's been laid out and you shouldn't keep smaller or larger fishes than have been deemed appropriate. And, and sometimes that can be a bummer. When we went camping a few weeks ago, we caught this really nice bass. I was really excited. Get out the tape measure. We're going to measure it. What we like to do is we keep the bass because they're not as good, and then we cook it up for the kids because they don't know any different. <laughs> so I was, all, I was excited. We eat the good stuff, but don't tell them that. They're not here. So. Um, but, but anyway, I was one inch off. I'm like trying to stretch the tail, you know, like get it to work, and it wasn't going to work. And I was like, ah, we haven't caught that many fish. This is a big bummer because it's tradition to have this big fish fry that we make. And, and I looked at Kim, and I, she's like, Can't, you know, whatever, I, I, I got to throw it back. So we threw it back in. Uh, we, we, had, we had more than enough fish, though, by the time we were done. 
so we're still blessed. Uh, business owners need to pay taxes. If you're a homeowner, yes, you pay your property taxes, but you shovel your sidewalk in the winter, you mow your grass in the summer. John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, Christians should bend over backward to obey and honor the governing authorities. We should do everything we can to obey the government. And in preparing this, everything in me was fighting against thinking that. And I should know better. And yet in me, my sin nature, as I said, it rises and says, I don't know about that. And yet God is sovereign over the government. We are to pay taxes. We are to submit to the governing authorities. And Paul takes it even a step uh, further in Romans 13, 7, continuing on that Romans 13 passage. He says, pay to all what is owed to them. And this is in the context of governing authorities. He says, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So in the context of governing authority, he repeats again, pay your taxes, and then he goes on to say that we are to respect and honor our governing officials. Again, this is Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing the word of God so that as we read it and we hear it, it is equal to as if God himself were speaking it to us. God's word is saying, honor your governing authorities. Now, think about that word honor. Where else do we see it in the scripture? We see it in the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother. Now, think about how we enforce this as parents. We want our children to honor us because we are the authority God's placed over them, and it is so important they do, not only because we want to be respected, but it's important for their health, right? We don't want them to die sticking their finger in an electrical socket. They need to honor what we tell them to do. We have authority by God to do that, and we're very quick to teach that. But we're not so quick to think about, well, you should honor your your governing authorities as well. Now, we can disagree with our political leaders, and praise God, in this country, we can, we have just about any platform we want to disagree with them openly. We can do it publicly. But God does not give us the right to disrespect the governing authorities. He does not give us the right. I want you to think about Jesus' example. He's standing before Pilate. He's about to be sentenced to crucifixion. Jesus is the one who has every authority in the world, and yet here he's standing to be judged before a man who has authority to judge. If anyone had a right to run their mouth in that moment, Christ did. He could have went off on, I think I might have, yeah, Pilate. I might have said Herod, but it's Pilate. He had every right to, and yet he quietly and respectfully honored him in his position, and he submitted to him. He reminded them of God's authority, but he was respectful. So I ask you this morning, what about you? If your Facebook friends were invited to come in and critique you on how well you're doing honoring governing officials, what would they say? Or maybe you're not into Facebook or going online, what about your friends from your your coffee group or the friends from lunch break at work? If they could come in and tell you how you're doing with showing honor and respect to governing authorities, what would they say? Better yet, what would Jesus say? The one who calls you to honor and respect them, what would he say about how you're doing on that? See, my fear is that we don't do that as Christians. We don't do it well. And what are we teaching our kids? The, ones we've, the very ones we call to respect our authority, if we're modeling that, we're teaching a generation that will rise up and think government is a bunch of idiots and they're not to be respected. 
And yet, the truth is, they're, they're an authority put in place by God. They don't always do what's right. We don't always have to agree with them, but we are commanded to respect and honor them. When was the last time you saw a positive political discussion? I don't know if I've ever seen a positive political discussion. And yet at the same time, if we're following Christ's words to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, we could have some great conversations that bring glory to God. We could be lighting up Facebook with respectful, good discussions where we're honoring our leaders, still giving our viewpoint and what we think we should do, and we could be bringing glad glory. And above that, we could be on Facebook praising God that we have the government that we do because it's far easier to live under this government with all of its faults than any other government in history. We can praise God for his mercy in providing us the government we have, and we should. And I also want to, just a reminder, let's pray for our leaders. Let's pray for our presidents, our senators, our judges, our justices. Let's pray for them because God uses prayer. And it is so easy for him to turn the heart of a president or a justice. He doesn't have to exert any energy. He can do it. We should be praying because God uses prayer. There's a second part to Jesus' answer. He doesn't end with render to Caesar what is Caesar's. He continues by saying, render to God the things that are God's. So you might be asking this morning, but how do we know where Caesar's authority ends and God's authority begins? When am I supposed to submit to Caesar and when do I come over here and submit to God? But that's totally the wrong question, right? Because God's authority does not end. He never stops being in authority. Okay? It's not this two-column checkbox where it's God and Caesar. Oh, I'm going to submit to Caesar in this one, God in this one, Caesar, Caesar, God, God, God. It's not that at all. Here's me Caesar's above me in authority, and God is like a giant umbrella of authority over everything, right? So ultimately, God has authority at all times. He never ceases to have authority. Recently, we went go-karting for a birthday party with the whole family, and it was a blast. I love doing that. But um, nowadays, they have these two-seaters where you can sit right beside your little kid, the one that's too short to go on the cart. And it's so cool because they sit right next to you and go drive around. When I was a kid, we didn't have the two-seater carts. But honestly, I thought it was way better. It was so cool to be able to sit on my dad's lap. And the little kid beside me can't reach the wheel, but when I'm on dad's lap, I had my hands on the wheel, and it was awesome, right? Driving by my brother, sticking my tongue out as my dad and I pass him. It was awesome, right? But here's the point. When, when I had my hands on the wheel, I thought I was in total control, and yet my dad's hands never left the wheel, right? He was always in authority of where that cart was going, what it was doing, who was in the cart. If it wasn't my turn, my brother got to go instead of me, okay? And if I was going to head toward a wall, my dad would have turned it if it was his will, and it would have been his will, right? So my point is this, that God is like that. He never ceases to be in authority. He will appoint who he wants to appoint at what time he will. Unfortunately for us, sometimes it's in judgment. And yet at the same time, that refines us as the people of God. So God's authority never ceases to be. So as Christians, we never cease to submit to God's authority ultimately. His authority is supreme. And I just want to remind you of this this morning. It's probably some of you are thinking about it. Some leaders are sinful. They do 
heinous things, and I want to remind you that all governing authorities will answer to God one day, and they will be judged for every action, for everything they did as a governing official. God will bring it into judgment. But continuing on and rendering to God what is God's. Um, when the coin was given to Jesus, he asked, whose image is on the coin? And the Pharisees and the Herodians said, well, it's, it's Caesar's image on the coin. And Jesus implies, well, if Caesar's image is on the coin, it's Caesar's. Give it to him, right? I want to remind you this morning that we also bear the image of a king. We were made in the image of God. And just as that coin belonged to Caesar, we belong to God. And we have such a great God that we can come to him in our filth and our sin, and we can come to him knowing that he has sent his son Jesus to die on the cross in our place so that that sin could be judged, and we can come now and give our lives entirely to Christ. And we can have the greatest joy that's possible in this life, rendering to God what is God's, even if it means submitting to governmental authority. Now we get into the, um, the stake, right? The stake. Um, as a general rule, we're to obey public officials, right? Even a deeply flawed government brings some form of peace. They punish evildoers of their laws. And those that obey the laws get to live peacefully in the land for the most part. Even the worst governments have some shape or form of that. But because governments are imperfect and leaders are sinners, there will be times when the government is blatantly wrong. And I, our culture has shifted drastically even in the past few years. Uh, Christianity used to be in big-time favor in this country for the majority of its existence. And yet, in the past few years, there are certain beliefs and values that Christians hold that are no longer being tolerated. And there have already been Christians who have had to go to sensitivity training for saying certain things that would be aligned with Scripture. Some have lost their businesses and had to pay steep fines for, for saying what God's word says. And there are even pastors in certain states that are concerned about the laws that the government will be encroaching on Sunday mornings and what can be preached, what can be said, how we do church. I really don't think it's crazy talk to say that in our lifetime, some of us could have to be faced with possibly having to, to uh, act in civil disobedience for Christ. So how do we know, then, when we should disobey the government? Here's a very simple answer. This is the easy part, right? It's this. This is the, if we, this is the third point. If you are commanded to sin, you must disobey the governing authorities. That's easy. No question. If you're called to disobey what God commands, you submit to God's authority because he's authority over all. Just like wives who submit to their husbands would do the same, children who submit to their parents should do the same. As our government charges us to sin against God, we say, I obey God rather than man. And by, all, by the way, what a great reason to bend over backward in obedience to the government so that if it ever comes to this and you get arrested for 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 something pertaining to honoring Christ, as they bring you in, they say, wow, this woman has a clear record and has never done a thing except for this one thing to pertaining to Christianity. Praise God if that were to happen. Similar thing happened to Daniel in Daniel 6. Uh, there were evil officials that were trying to find a way to get at Daniel, right? 
And they said, we will, find, uh, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. May that be the truth for us. Okay? We don't want to go in being uh, persecuted and they pull up our record and, man, this guy is speeding all the time. He's only got a couple points left on his driver's license. We had to come over here for this. He's gotten warnings for this and that. Right? We want to honor and glorify God in all things, and we can do it as we obey the government in that way. So I, I, a couple of scriptures. Um, let's go right back to what, what Jesus says. Is there a specific command where it says, disobey the government under such and such circumstances? Well, not exactly. It's not detailed like that. But I would say that in this passage where it says, render unto God what is God's, is about as close as we get. John Piper says this about Jesus' words. It's on the screen. When you, know all, when you know that all is God's, then anything you render to Caesar will be for God's sake. Any authority you ascribe to Caesar, you will ascribe to him for the sake of God's greater authority. Rendering to Caesar is limited and defined by rendering to God we ultimately submit to God's authority. And any lesser authority does not deserve our commitment and our obedience if it is contrary to God's word. We see this type of disobedience in the Hebrew midwives. When we went through Exodus, do you remember? Pharaoh commanded them that if there was a boy Hebrew that was born, they were to kill them. And they said, no, that would be sin. They hid the babies. God blessed the midwives, blessed the nation of Israel as they grew according to God's plans. In Acts 5, the apostles were commanded by the religious authorities to stop preaching the name of Christ. And they said, we must obey God rather than men. We see in Daniel, uh, Daniel himself, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they all disobeyed their king on several accounts because they knew that they only obeyed the king as unto the Lord. So we disobey the government when we cannot obey for God's sake. If we cannot do it under the Lord, we don't do it. We do this without violence while honoring our leaders and, and officials who come against us. So that's simple. That's easy. If, if the government makes a law that causes you to sin, you must obey God rather than man. That's easy. The second one gets a little trickier. The second way we may have to disobey the civil authorities is no, the second one is that if no legal re recourse for fighting injustice exists, you may have to disobey the government. So again, if there's injustice happening and it's gross, it may be a cause that you have to defy the government in order to bring about justice. We see this in Scripture as well. Um, the Hebrews were enslaved by Pharaoh in, in Exodus again. And Moses rises up and he defies Pharaoh in order to free them. We see this in Esther. There was a law that said the queen cannot become, come before the throne of the king, and yet she defied that law so she could go and advocate for her people, the people of God, and God blessed it. In 1 Kings 18, Queen Jezebel was murdering all of God's prophets by the hundreds, and Obadiah defied these orders. Now again, Obadiah wasn't commanded to sin and go and kill anyone, Yet he saw this great injustice, he defied the authorities, and he hid a hundred prophets so that Jezebel could not kill them. 
And we see similar acts throughout history. If you think about Anne Frank and her family, somebody housed her. Somebody defied the government to bring about justice and preserve her family's lives, or at least tried to. People like Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks knew that people were made in the image of God and they were not to be treated like animals. They should not be lynched and treated as second-class citizens and they acted peacefully to bring about justice. Here's my fear in talking about this this morning with this provision of disobedience. My biggest fear is that people are going to walk away and think more on the end of disobedience. And they're going to think, oh, for that little thing, I think it might be injustice, let's disobey the government. And then you get picked up and you're saying, Pastor Jesse told me to. We don't want that, okay? We don't want that, okay? It's not for every little thing. We must exercise extreme caution and discernment and have wisdom in how we do this. So how do we know when we should do this in the cases of injustice? Here are some things, some, some ways that we can exercise discernment. Number one, we should seek clarity from the Holy Spirit by going to God's word and wrestling through it to decide whether or not this is a case that's a big enough injustice that we are to act and defy the government. Number two, you should seek the counsel of the elders and other mature Christians. You don't want to dive into this on your own and just, you want to get the wisdom and the counsel of other godly people. Number three, Devote much time to prayer individually and with others. This is the type of thing you should be praying about without ceasing. You should dedicate extra time to. This is worth getting up early and praying for a half hour for every day before you go and act in this way. It's worth calling your friends and saying, please come over tonight and pray with me because I think I might have to defy the government and I know what that might mean and I want to make sure I can honor Christ in this. Number four, consider how much damage will be done by the law. Okay? If it's not a lot of damage, there might be a good chance it's not a good one to, to, to defy the government on. But if it's a lot of damage and it's a big deal, it might be a huge injustice. Number five, consider to what extent people will be affected by this law. Is it just one person who had this crazy incident and for whatever reason the law did not bring about clear justice? You probably won't have to you know, show civil disobedience in this case. But if it's a law that's made and, and the injustice is happening to a lot of people, you, you might want to consider it. And lastly, and I think this is one of the biggest ones, consider whether or not disobedience will open up a clear witness for Christ. Now that doesn't mean that you'll win favor with all the people in our culture. What it means is that will you be able to clearly proclaim the gospel and does this injustice glorify God as you fight it and show the gospel to the world and allow you to speak the gospel to the world? So I asked earlier if you think you're prepared to obey Christ to the point of martyrdom. I want you to think about this this morning. If we're not prepared to obey Christ by honoring our government in these simple, easy things, do you think we're ready to, do, to, uh, to die as a martyr? To obey Christ to the point of death? So I encourage you this morning, in, our culture is shifting, things could happen. I don't think it's going to get extremely bad, but we could see some Christians being affected by this. And I don't think people are going to be killed anytime soon for, for believing in Christ. But if you want to prepare for jail time, 
and, and, and obedience to Christ to the point of things like that, I would encourage you to practice by obeying and honoring and respecting the governing authorities that God has put in place for you now. Learn obedience that way. It'll, it'll prime for, for what's to come. So I encourage you this morning to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, trusting that God is sovereign over everything. And always render unto God what is God's, no matter the cost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for the cross. I thank you for the gospel that has redeemed us, that you have called us to be a people of your own possession so that we can be holy and and bring the message of the gospel to the world. Lord, please help us. We so easily just turn to our own opinions and comfort and living for ourselves, especially when we think about taxes or obeying the government. Lord, we can, I confess that my attitude sometimes is not what you call it to be, and I repent. Lord, I delight in your word, which calls me to render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Help us, Lord, to bring you glory and honor by joyfully submitting when we are called to submit. And help us to bring you glory by ultimately submitting to God's authority, even if it means persecution, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.